0: This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser.
1: And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance.
0: And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries.
1: You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Chinese demand and an improving U.S. economy lifted sales at Caterpillar. Machinery sales climbing the most since August of 2011, but maybe not enough to impress investors. Joe O'Day is vice president at Vertical Research Partners. They are an independent equity research firm, really focusing on industrials and the materials sectors. Joe, by the way, covers the machinery sector, so a perfect person to talk to about Caterpillar earnings. He joins us on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. Joe, great to have you here with Corey and myself. Uh, you saw the quarter. Um, tell us your initial thoughts here.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I think uh, a lot of anticipation going into this quarter. First, whether we'd see you continue building momentum, and, and second, with a little bit of clarity on the tax front. Um, And I think, really, you know, Cat was able to check the box across, you know, a number of these focus items for the quarter. Uh, You know, as you mentioned in the intro, we did see uh, accelerating growth, uh, as we've seen over the course of 2017. Um, And while that was at a consolidated level, it's, it's across each of the segments as well. Uh, and, and that momentum is carrying over into the expectations for for 2018 so you know I, I think what we saw was affirmation of, of expectations that you know the, the confidence we're hearing and the support that we're seeing in the end markets is going to translate into a, a pretty strong backdrop for 2018 so let let me let me um, drill
1: then, down a little bit when you say expectations expectations for what you know I was just noting earlier that uh, Caterpillar has had significant declines in free cash flow over the last few years, albeit in the last few quarters. It's, it's increased somewhat, but nowhere near to the level it was a couple of years ago, even though the stock's been off to the reaches. So, ex- expectations for positive what? Revenue growth? Profits? Free cash flow? None of the above? It
2: would really you No, know, it would really be all of the above. and. You know we we didn't get an exact number on revenue, but given the earnings growth that they're talking about, it would be a combination of revenue and profitability, and that would also translate to free cash flow. So free cash in seventeen was good. It's set up to be very strong again in eighteen, and really no indication of seeing it slow down. So you know I think it's really across all of those items.
0: It has had, though, a tremendous run. It was funny, I was just reading a story a little bit earlier on the Bloomberg that just you know noted that the run-up that we've seen in cat shares last year, and that on a, kind of even a technical basis, they were certainly overbought, and, and no surprise to see maybe somewhat of a correction uh, in the share price. So, in terms of what we're seeing for the stock today, because it's kind of been all over the map, uh, it was up 2.8%, it was down 3.5%, right now it's pretty much flat. How do you interpret that in terms of what investors think about
3: the quarter?
2: Yeah, I think that you know some of the caution might be related to margin, and so you know this is where we're coming off of extremely strong margin performance and growth over the you know first few quarters of the year. Uh, we saw that growth slow a little bit in the fourth quarter. And so I think it's just taking a step back and trying to calibrate. You know, a year where we saw earnings start at 290 and end at nearly seven dollars. You know, what what kind of growth expectations are are realistic moving forward? You know, CATS had a track record of very strong beats and raises over the course of 2017. Do we still have that kind of setup in 2018?
1: Which is to say, I they think- missed the, the the last two quarters of 2016. Right. I mean, out of the last six quarters, yeah. they've missed two.
2: Um, Yeah. And the last four have been exceptional, really. Um, So you go back and I mean, it really just emphasizes, you know, you had obviously the extremely challenging period from 2012 to 2016 and declines in 15 and 16 that were more severe than they were in, in 12 and 13 and 14. All of a sudden that reversed. And now you you know, over the course of twenty seventeen you get the combination of, of improving end markets and all the cost out efforts and the extremely strong incrementals on that. So, you know, that that's the momentum that we're carrying forward. Um, and but I think that's also a little bit of the struggle is how quickly things have gone from, to your point, in sixteen, you know, still going down to in seventeen, you know, the very sharp V that we've seen.
0: We always like to talk about Caterpillar, Joe, because they are so much entrenched within what's going on in the global economy. Uh, They have their own research inside, but, you know, they're obviously, if people are buying their machines, um, it's a good sign that things are going well in the global economy. Do you still see that they're a good barometer for that? And based on what they're seeing, what does it tell you about the global economy?
2: No, I think absolutely still a good bellwether of of what we're seeing out there um, across end markets and and across regions, uh, and so you see you know, continued growth uh, across uh, all of their regions and all of their segments expected in in 2018. I think you know one of the encouraging signs is you know China that really surprised positively over the first half of the year, uh, maintained that strength into the back half of 2017. And the outlook, at least into the first half of, of 18, is is still quite positive for you know, sustained uh, uh, levels of demand that we've seen recently. Uh, you, you think about it across mining, construction, oil and gas—you know, all markets where we're seeing uh, growing demand, and that's recovery support off of the trough. Um, but also with commodity level support and on, on the price activity that we've seen there recently. Uh, so I think you know for the for the industrial economy and what we're seeing out of CAT, you know, absolutely a you know a, a very good indicator of of the confidence.
1: And, and the balance sheet looks to better Canada. too. We've seen uh, inventories down, receivables down. That's a good thing with rising you know slightly rising revenues.
2: Um, that is a good thing, and I think that. You know, not only for CAT, but for CAT's dealers, and you know, their inventories are, are low, and you know, they're low with a, an improving demand level, and so they're just going to look lower. Um, and part of that is related to a supply chain that needs to be able to meet the, the demand so you can feed the end market demand as well as the dealer restock. Um, but I think you know, CAT's inventory in good shape, also the dealer inventory that can go higher.
0: All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Joe, thank you very much. Joe O'Day, he is vice president. He covers the machinery sector for the folks over at Vertical Research Partners. As I mentioned earlier, they are an independent equity research firm, and they focus on industrials and materials sectors. Uh, Joe joining us on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. As I mentioned, uh, catch shares just a little lower as we speak.
4: watching for us.
1: Privacy, of course, is a big deal for some of us more than others, says a guy who shares his private life on the radio every day. But uh, uh, Michelle Dennity is focused on those unauthorized uh, uh, breaches of privacy in her role as chief privacy officer at Cisco. What is the nature, sorry, what is the nature of what we're um, uh, seeing in terms of um, hacking today as it relates to sort of uh, hacking of individuals? What, what's different this last year than we've seen in previous years?
3: Well, I
5: think we are continuing to be on trend with bigger and deeper and more data-enriched tax incursions, ransomware attacks, where people are actually leveraging information that they steal from us to harm us. So we're, we're seeing a growth because we're seeing a growth in more and more connectivity. So the downside is very low, but the good news is the upside in innovation around this area and the upside in actually figuring out and measuring privacy and data maturity is what we're seeing the trend being. The more you manage it, the more you can really inform and enhance your business.
0: You know, it's good timing that we're talking about this, Michelle, because Sunday is National Data Privacy Day. And I just think about TikTok. We need to kind of give... A list for folks because there are so many devices out there. I think you guys cite 20 billion connected devices that are out there. So, what are the top three things that consumers and owners of connected devices should be doing right now?
5: It's a great question. I think number one thing for consumers is number one, notice. Put yourself on notice. What information and what tasks do you want to do? Do you want to bank? Are you looking to get your thermostat online? Are you playing with those new toys that are connected to the Internet? First, figure out what information you want to share and where it's being shared to your best of your ability. Step number two, what are you going to do about it? Looking at the controls that are in a lot of these devices, looking at your settings, and it may be under privacy. It might also be under general settings or security. So check with what you're sharing and how you're sharing and control it. And then number three is continue to have uh, an educational loop with you and your family, with you and your employer, so that your expectations for data are being met. You have a lot of say as a consumer to tell companies what you like and what you don't like.
1: Um, where is it most often abused? Where, where, is, where is this you know you mentioned ransomware. But I wonder, you know, uh, if there are other uh, actions. We've talked a lot about ransomware in the shows, and one of those other things going on?
5: So I think one of the things that, that people um, aren't really sure about is what is the value chain for stolen data? And so there's been several um, reports that have come out recently that, for example, your health care information. Sure, someone might get health care services on your behalf. But the big business is actually getting collections of the healthcare data, sharing that data with pill farms and other opiate providers, and then fueling the drug crisis using stolen data and fraudulent doctors. So there's that kind of societal impact, but there's also more and more uh, folks online who can sell your credit card, damage your credit rating, damage your reputation, and generally make it very difficult for you to prove that you are who you are and that your credit is good and sound and your word is your bond.
0: Michelle, are we fighting kind of a tough war out there, a tough cyber war, um, and one that's going to be difficult to, to win? And I bring it up because, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, is is enabling a lot of companies to do a better job and anticipate attacks at the same time. Uh, those hackers are using the same technology to strike back. Just got about 30 seconds. AI and and machine learning and all these things kind of complicating it and making it also easier for hackers, just quickly.
5: Absolutely. So AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning means big data has gone bigger. So yes, we need to take a look at this from an industrial perspective. We need to look at it from a risk perspective, and we need to look at it from an economic protection uh, perspective, and then fight the war. It's not going to be an easy war, but it's a valuable one and one that we want to win.
0: Right. And gets more serious. It gets uh, amped up and as you start to see more hacks targeting things like electrical grids or transportation systems and other critical uh, infrastructure. So Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2018. Get ready for the uh, cyber attacks. Uh, Michelle Dennity, thank you so much. Chief Privacy Officer at Cisco, joining us on the, Silic- uh, on the phone from Silicon Valley. Sunday, as I said, National Data Privacy Day. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master, Corey Johnson, right here on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> Apple's got a $38 billion tax bill, but, you know, not to worry. They've got a long time. In fact, they've got eight years to pay for it. You can see why this story ca- caught our attention. Uh, with us to talk about it is Lindley Browning, tax reporter at Bloomberg News, wrote the story, as I mentioned, on the phone from Fairfield, Connecticut. $38 billion, wow, that's a big tax bill. But they've got some time to pay for it. When I've got a tax bill, you know, i got to pay for it, otherwise i get a lot of fees.
3: Exactly. I mean, this is functionally what a lot of people would consider an interest free loan from the government. And when Apple announced this is what its tax bill would be on its untaxed offshore earnings, everyone said, ooh, uh, that is a very large chunk of change. And somehow, I think a lot of people actually weren't paying much attention and thought, well, that's going to immediately go into federal coffers. And that is not the case.
1: So let me bring in Alistair Barr, who is uh, one of our uh, great editors here at Bloomberg News here in our San Francisco Bureau, uh, folks on the world of tech. And, and uh, Alistair, I think there's a big deal because this is a big deal. I mean, Al, this is a tax bill, uh, maybe one of the biggest uh, in the history of time.
6: Yeah, um, Apple especially wants, wants to highlight that. Um, the problem with that is that uh, Apple's revenue is, is some of the largest in the history of time, too. So uh, as a percentage, um, it's actually quite a good deal for them.
0: What's interesting, too, is all right. So wait a minute. So essentially that first. So they're repatriating a bunch of money back. And so because they have a much longer time to pay for it, their first bill, Lindley, uh, is not going to be a lot of money. It's not going to be 38 billion. It's going to be something more like 3 billion, at least according to the folks that you've been talking to.
3: That's correct. I mean, most likely every multinational will want to bail themselves uh, this eight-year span because it's interest-free, right? So you pay 8% of your total bill each year for the first five years, and then you pay 15, and then you pay 20, and then you pay 25%. I should also note that just because you're paying these repatriation tax bills doesn't mean you're actually repatriating or bringing back into the U.S. Mm -hmm. that money. In fact uh counterintuitively but some of that money is already here it's invested in US treasuries
1: and the like and also, they do that uh, from Nevada interestingly also part of their tax play i mean the, the their their entire sort of treasury program cash management program they call it not apple but uh, what braeburn, braeburn which Brae, is yeah. the name of a kind of apple itself um this is a company that is as as savvy as they get when it comes to managing taxes
6: yeah and that's Sorry, Alistair, Sorry. go ahead. Yeah, uh, I, I was going to say that Tim Cook, before all this went down, he, the one thing he, used, he said over and over again publicly was that he wanted it to be a deemed repatriation, which is basically you, no matter what you do with the money, where you put it, it is deemed to have been repatriated and you owe the money anyway. Because I think he, I don't know whether Apple was not going to bring it back, but he, I think his subtext was other companies are going to probably play games and, and not bring it back. So you, you have to force everyone to pay the tax anyway.
0: Lindley, come on in. I know you have some thoughts on that too.
3: Well, I think Alistair is exactly right, and there may be some uh, very interesting nuances, actually, that I haven't previously thought of based on on what Alistair just noted. But the idea is that a deemed repatriation means you are forced to pay the tax. Whether you like it or not, you are going to pay 15.5% on your cash and cash-like assets. And you're going to pay eight uh, percent on your illiquid assets. So those would be things invested overseas and in things like plants, uh, equipment, and machinery. That is the mandatory part. It is not mandatory that you actually bring the money back if it is not already here.
0: I guess what's interesting about this story is huge cut in corporate taxes for. American companies also you know a break in terms of repatriating money back. What's the takeaway here is it one first of all um, Lindley, in that there's not going to be as much tax revenue going into federal coffers as we anticipated and that makes me wonder okay you know is the government going to come up short and what does that mean for overall government spending?
3: I think there are two uh, main takeaways here one, this measure is the repatriation. Taxes alone are expected to raise by, uh, by estimates of the Joint Committee on Taxation nearly $340 billion over a decade. But that's not exactly what companies are going to be paying. That figure includes estimates of shareholder taxes that will be paid when people cash in uh, on, perhaps, uh, you know, rising stock prices, uh, share buybacks, share dividends, et cetera. I think the biggest takeaway, however, is that we shouldn't necessarily assume that having uh, this estimated $3.1 trillion in overseas earnings now, quote unquote, free to come back to the U.S. and be invested in the U.S. is, is going to happen. We should not assume that that is necessarily the case.
1: Alistair, what do you think this means for the, you know, the very complex arrangements that the, through Ireland and so on that uh, Apple's set up already, and their investments uh, overseas? Are those likely to lessen now?
7: Because so, I think I
1: think when I looked last, it's something like ninety four percent of Apple's cash was overseas. I think so. Basically, be... what? Just...
3: Sorry, oh, Alistair. I'm sorry. Go
6: ahead, Alistair. Oh no worries. Um, I was going to say that the that specific Irish structure that Apple and other companies use that 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 is going to go away anyway. What's the funny name for it? Um, is it the double Irish? Yeah, Triple the double Irish. Irish yes, yeah, the Dutch sandwich. Um, lots of structures like that. I imagine. I imagine. You know, there'll be tax lawyers who are coming up with new structures, and and that will always be the case. But also, some of these um, tax some of these tax reforms also imposed some new taxes on, on some inter-company and, and intellectual property holdings um, overseas as well. And that that is a lot more complicated, but that, that certainly could have an impact um, on, on these in, inter-company. I hope they have though. funny
1: names again. I just think... You know, with with the uh, with the Dutch sandwich and the double Irish, they sound like wrestling moves. Carol, don't you think? Maybe
3: <laughs> the new taxes do indeed have new funny names. The first uh, is relates to a deduction known as foreign derived intangible income, known as City, Which, if you listen to the rapper Fifty Cent, that is his nickname. And then the <laughs> who doesn't. Is- is guilty, which stands for, <laughs> and the people think right. this has to have been deliberate global, intangible, low tax
0: income. All right, got to run. Funny stuff. Lindley Browning, tax reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Connecticut. Alistair Barr, tech reporter at Bloomberg News and editor from our 960 studio.
7: They became as royal rangers and were very good. So that ends our little tale of Robin Robin
1: Yes, it was Louis Prima that inspired the beginning of a company known as Robinhood, based in Palo Alto. I made up the Louis Prima part, but Robinhood is based in Palo Alto. It's a really interesting uh, business around the business of trading stocks, but stocks no longer. Robinhood with a big announcement today. Beju Bot, the CEO and co-founder, joins us right now. Although, if you want to tell me, Beju, that it was actually Louis Prima that inspired you to start this cool business, you're welcome to confess that right here.
8: I I wish that was the case. Unfortunately, (laughs) it wasn't.
1: (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for having me on again. uh, Absolutely. I think what you guys are doing is so interesting, Uh, and particularly the addition of cryptocurrencies here. What what are you doing here today?
8: So today we're excited to announce that uh, users all across the United States that have Robinhood on their phone will be able to start tracking 16 different cryptocurrencies on the Robinhood app, And starting in February, we'll be offering zero commission, 24-7 trading for Bitcoin and Ethereum in five states. So big push we're making and uh, really excited about it.
0: Why are you doing it?
8: Well, there's a bunch of reasons. I think the the main reason for us is that this lines up very directly with our mission, which is to make the financial system in our country work for the rest of us. And we see a transition of, of power that cryptocurrencies are enabling uh, dramatically from institutions to individuals. And so we think that lines up very directly with what we have been doing with, with equities markets and with derivatives markets over the last two years. So that's the primary reason. We've also seen tremendous uh, interest in this from our consumer base. So that's, that's also a very important part of it.
1: So I'll say that uh, the the quoting of of, uh, all these cryptocurrencies is very interesting, but the trading of them is is a much bigger effort. Now you said, so you're offering quotes in 16, you're gonna allow in February trading of which uh, cryptocurrencies?
8: The ones that we're gonna start in February with are Bitcoin and and Ether, Ethereum. Um, Those are the ones that we've seen the most interest in. We also, we think that there's a lot of utility in being able to track some of these altcoins um, in our app, and it's something that we wanna provide to users. There's no, there's no guarantee that we'll be adding those specific coins uh, for trading functionality in the future, but we do plan on adding a lot more coins so, as we see ones that are emerging.
1: Uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal, if you type in VCCY, you get to a, a cryptocurrency uh, a dashboard, and it provides quotes of Bitcoin, Ripple, Ethereum, and Litecoin. Why not mm-hmm. include Ripple and Litecoin in that list of which ones to trade? Like, How do you make a decision? You said uh, user interest, but surely... Uh, it, once you add it, you 'll get more interest why Why not add add some of those other names that are also often quoted?
8: You know I think that 's what we 're looking for we 're looking for that user interest and we 're looking for the sophistication, the team behind these coins and and the consumer adoption so we 've put together a listing committee internally that we that we plan on being pretty systematic about this stuff with The other thing is is that we realize that Robinhood, um, as a pretty established player at this point, entering this market has the potential to to add a little bit of volatility, and we want to be more proactive with announcing that this is kind oh. of where we're looking, so we can so we can dampen that a little bit.
1: I guess I just wonder what if there are things that are technologically di- – all these coins are technologically different. And, and this, uh, right. let me give you a little context to my question. I think when we talk about cryptocurrencies, we lump them all in together, and they're enormously different, some of them. Yeah. And so I wonder if you could help explain to me in what way is it technologically different to allow trading of – Litecoin and Ripple, for example, I mentioned a 4 quoted here, as opposed to Bitcoin, which you're not going to allow trading in yet, to the technological aspects of trading Bitcoin and Ethereum. Is there anything substantially different there?
8: There isn't anything substantially different there for us. Um, it, the way that we facilitate the transactions has to do with um, having access to liquidity for them. And that those, those are not materially different for us.
0: From what I understand, just looking at some stories, is that you had about 100,000 of your users were regularly searching for crypto pricing, uh, and, uh, and so you're kind of meeting that demand. I guess what I want to know is, how many new people are you hoping that will sign up for the app? Give us an idea of how many people are using the app, but how you expect something like this, offering this, will grow those users that will use other things than just crypto trading.
8: Yeah. So we've we've announced uh, earlier last year that we had crossed over three million accounts on Robinhood. Um, So we've got a very substantial and very quickly growing consumer base in the US. We do expect the addition of cryptocurrencies to dramatically increase our, our growth. And that's from a business perspective, the bet that we're making is that this will allow us to introduce an entirely new generation of consumers to the financial system. And maybe they get started with cryptocurrencies. And we will eventually be able to show them the benefits of owning stocks and options, both of which we offer zero commission on Robinhood. We'll be able to show them the benefits of owning ETFs, also which we offer for zero commission on Robinhood. And mm-hmm. sometimes we'll see it the other way. I think for right. us, it's it's very clear the demand is there. Got and
0: it. we got to run. But we'll check in with you down the road to uh, get an update. Bajubat, he's co-founder, co-CEO of Robinhood, uh, on the phone from Palo Alto, California, joining us right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm
4: my car.
0: it is time for The Drive to the Close. Kathy Boyle is president and founder at Chapin Hill Advisors back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Um, nice to have you here with us. Great to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Your research notes I've been looking over, um, well, some of them covered a lot. You talked about double lines, Jeff Gunlock, uh, and some other stuff talks about Goldilocks being here. When you look at the market environment, what does it say to you?
4: So I still think we're very peaky. You know, the enthusiasm is crazy. The advisor optimism, according to an Investor's Intelligence, is 66.4, highest since April of 1986. Does that make you nervous and say people are too optimistic? They're very, very optimistic. And the Goldilocks economy is, you know, the porridge is just right, right? Nothing go wrong. So Ray Dalio counteracted mm-hmm. uh, Munchin today on the uh, dollar and thinks that his weak stance on the dollar is bad. But Dal- Dalio also is very bullish on the markets. He thinks the economy is growing. He thinks the tax reform is going to stimulate, and he thinks there's no inflation, interest rates are going to stay in the small range. And that's the consensus. If most of the managers think that the Treasury the 10-year won't get past 3% this year. Just good enough. Just good enough. But you saw today when we had the auction go through and we spiked up, the market took a little dump there for a while. Now, Ray Dalio has also said, I think the easy money has been made. Yes, yes. Now, of course, this man has been unbelievable track record, right? So it's hard to go against him. He's got something like a 27% compounded annual return. You know, mm-hmm. he's close to new money.
1: And and, and and on a big number, it's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a big return on a... You know, a $50 million fund.
4: Exactly. It's in the billions,
0: Oh, right? forgive me. It was Howard Marks, actually, of Oak Tree, I think, who said it, the easy money has been made. Oh, OK.
4: But who
1: also has a pretty good record. Yeah,
0: so, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I can't keep them all straight because everybody's weighing in on the markets. Uh, it is kind of funny, though, to have so many big names kind of weighing in on the, on the market environment. I think everybody's just kind of like, I mean, could we see another 2018, like, to, or see another... 2017 here in 2018, certainly in terms of the equity markets.
4: We absolutely could. At this point, anything's possible. And the, the market can go on much longer than you ever think it could. And, you know, the shorts have gotten cremated. You know, VIX is... I m- thought you
1: were going to go with the thing we short-sellers used to say, which is the market can remain rational longer than you can remain solvent.
4: Yes. that If I could have remembered that, Corey, I would have said that. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, exactly we used to walk saying. around the
1: office of my old hedge fund and say... Ugh.
4: <laughs> yeah, so can't they see
1: this company has no revenues? You know.
4: I know, I know. I was talking to a friend of mine today, he runs H D G E, the uh the mini hedge fund ETF, and he started a new one called Squeeze, and basically he's looking for stocks that are getting squeezed, either you know, big short position, they mm-hmm. squeeze that way or the other way. And um, you know, and he's having trouble getting it into distribution in big enough firms because it's still a startup, it's still small, right? And nobody wants to look at anything negative. Nobody wants to look at hedges and everybody, you know, greed is very strong. Motivator, the problem is fear is greater. So, if this thing does turn around and rates could be the catalyst, you know, everybody's thinking North Korea. I mean, the market's got a ridiculous amount. You know, I think it's 6.6 trillion since Trump has gotten in, mm-hmm. is the amount of global um, up. And, you know, Soros is on, you know, being very negative over Davos. On- and that's
0: actually an important point, I think, Kathy, that you say, it's globally that we've seen it up. I mean, we have so many markets in sync right now, so many equity markets, are certainly have over the past year. I mean, that says to you, I mean, is that all President Trump? Or is that just also what we're seeing in terms of growth
4: and expectations for various economies around the globe? I think it's a combination. I think certainly the debt Debt is very, very high. We've become addicted to debt. Uh, Bill White, who's the former um, chief economist at the International Bank of International Monetary, not something.
1: the former New York Yankees announcer,
4: not that guy. No, no, no. Somebody knows sure? a little you bit the about
1: same money. Same place at the same time. <laughs>
4: Corey's going there, and so he uh, he says we've become addicted to debt, and he says some of the signs that are worrisome is uh, I think the debt overall has grown 327 percent to global GDP. And so we're at very, very high levels of debt versus GDP. That's global debt, Global. yeah over the last several government, years.
0: government, consumer, everything everything debt? I think all yeah in. I think
4: he's putting it all in. And then what he pointed out was a couple of firms, a UK construction firm, um, uh, just borrowed a huge amount of money from a private German lender. And the same thing with the South African retailers. So they're going to um, unusual sources, what he called shadow banking. But again, and also remember, a lot of the corporate buybacks have been funded by debt. You know, so we have debt in everywhere. Consumers have run up their uh, credit cards. We are not saving. We're still not saving. So savings rate is still low.
0: And I'm just looking global debt. Um, I've just got a Bloomberg story. Rose to a record 233 trillion in the third quarter of 2017. This was at the beginning of the year. More than 16 trillion higher from the end of 2016. Uh, ratio of debt to gross domestic product fell though for the fourth consecutive quarter, uh, as we've seen economic growth accelerate. The ratio though new still now around 318 percent, three percentage points below
4: a high set in the third quarter of 2016. Yep. So we become very addicted to that. So but that's is not a money. new story. That's not a no, new story. No, it's not a new story. But the problem is, you know, everybody thought mm-hmm. it was Goldilocks in 07 as well. There's even a quote in a uh, Zero Hedge article on Bernanke. And what he said very much mimicked what uh, Dalio said today. You know, like the economy's growing, things will continue. And that was 07 before the peak of the market. Maybe you know, they're so right, though. They could be. Absolutely. And they're con- going to continue to make money. I mean, the commodity funds are closing down. You know, commodities are out of favor. Gold is beginning to inch up, you know, but there hasn't been any inflation in the economy. And, you know, everybody just believes the story. But I can tell you I see regular people. And mm-hmm. we have something going on right now that we're selling as a way to help our uh, our business, our breakfast clubs. We have breakfast clubs, networking clubs, get some visibility. It's $240 for a whole year. You would think I'm asking for $4,000. <laughs> and so I've had one person after another say, oh, I'll do that next year or I'll do that in three months. So these are mm-hmm. small business owners locally where I live. It's 17 dollars a month is what it works out to they get 14 months and to do what they have a lot landing pad on my landing oh. page on my it's visibility on my website because people are always come to me for referrals for, it's all different kinds of experts yeah and so I'm just telling you that just I don't think believe people. things are quite as good a lot of people don't understand what I do for a living that's because they don't have any money huh. you know so I know you know I, yeah. I talk to a lot of different people I host a lot of events I see a lot of people Kathy Boyle President and founder At Chapin Hill Advisors In our Bloomberg 1130
0: studio Nice to have you back
5: Move around Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth Move Under my feet You move like they do I've never seen anyone Move that fast Shake Shake All right people Let's move like We've got a purpose Move Slide it
8: over Something's called Movers and Shakers It costs a little more But that name Cracked me
1: up Oh, oh, let's go. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: All right, everybody, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Thursday afternoon. Carol Messer along with Corey Johnson uh, taking a look at uh, the S&P 500. 252 names in the index higher today. We've got 249 lower, so almost an even split there for the S&P 500 for unchanged. One name that we've talked about uh, a lot today is Caterpillar, which came out with its uh, latest quarterly earnings release. And uh, we did see Caterpillar shares kind of all over the map today. Uh, They were down 35 Percent. They opened up 2.8 percent here at the close, uh, a gain of just about six tenths of a percent in today's session. So, well, off their highs and lows uh, of the day, if you will. As for what did we get from the quarter? Um, definitely, though, we we're seeing some signs of a broadening expansion, economic expansion uh, globally. And Caterpillar giving us some evidence of that surging Chinese demand and an improving U.S. economy, lifted sales of uh, Caterpillar's mining and construction machines. And so the company now is projecting higher earnings for 2018 than analysts estimate. Uh, the outlook from Cat considered an economic bellwether. Coming as industries from manufacturing to services report increased sales and orders that have fueled Record equity prices and buoyed investor expectations, uh, and as we speak, do need to mention Intel because they are coming out. I'm
1: looking at that right now.
0: Yeah, fourth quarter revenue seventeen point zero five billion. That's better than analysts were forecasting an estimate of sixteen point thirty five billion. Fourth quarter just at EPS, Corey. <clears throat> a dollar 8 a share that definitely is a beat the estimate was for 87 cents a share and the company giving an outlook for a first quarter adjusted eps 70 cents uh, plus or minus 5 cents a little bit of a a range there the estimate that's out there is 73 cents a share what are we seeing in the after hours
1: so i don't it's it, uh, it it's trading percent. up but i think it should be i mean this is so this is a uh, 4% revenue gain when it was expectation of flat um, also worth noting it's coming off of a 2% revenue gain in the previous quarter um, Boosting so it's, its
0: dividend too, let's just point that mm-hmm. out. Yeah.
1: Which which investors like. Yep. There were concerns here, and, and this is a more carefully listened to conference call than we've had in quite a while, because the company has got this problem with some security in some of their chips. There have been problems with security in, in, or with chips uh, manufacturing in the past for Intel. Years ago, they had a problem with the Pentium. It cost them half a billion dollars to settle those problems. So, you know, the concern is. What's this mean for sales? Are these security problems causing customers to pause with sales period? Uh, Now it's worth noting that this is a time when They've got over 90% share in PCs and in, in servers, so there's not a lot of opportunities to go elsewhere for uh, these guys. Right,
0: but you've got a lot of companies, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's Apple and others that are looking to maybe make their own chips.
1: And, and when it comes to phones, certainly you've got Apple, you've got, and, and in servers, you've got Google, Facebook, Apple, all uh, investing in semiconductors, uh, even Amazon. Uh, that will run their server farm. So there is this very interesting kind of white box threat out there. Uh, nonetheless, uh, 2017, a record year for Intel uh, in terms of the results, uh, and you know really focused on the data center, uh, in addition to having some success in PCs. I'm actually looking at the release right now. I'll give you some more on that. Um, I'll tell you what, why don't you go to their stock, and well, let me come back to Intel just for a second and see what the stock's doing and maybe give you a little more detail.
0: And for a great uh, story, lots of detail on Intel, check out uh, the Bloomberg Business Week story that Max Jafkin and Ian King did uh, January 18th. I'll put it on Twitter. Intel has a big problem. It needs to act like it. It tells you a lot uh, about that Intel uh, controversy and flaws within its chips. Uh, Starbucks also out uh, with their earnings release here after the close. Starbucks, uh, first quarter comp sales, always key when we're talking about a retailer, up two percent. Analysts were looking for a little bit more, though. They were looking for an increase of 3%. First quarter adjusted EPS, 65 cents a share. That's a beat. Uh, The estimate out there, that's an eight uh, cent beat. They were looking for 57 cents. First quarter adjusted EPS, does include a $0.07 tax benefit. So do the math there. And then it comes down about $0.58. So maybe just a penny better than what uh, Wall Street was uh, forecasting. What is? Let me just take a quick check as Corey looks into Intel. Uh, Starbucks shares are actually down 3.7% in the after hours. Mm -hmm. So some disappointment there uh, from earnings. And it could be with that comp sales uh, number uh, as well as, um, yeah, maybe that's a big deal. What's I I want to give it to you real
1: quick. But uh, just Intel, uh, they got two big businesses, right? They got PC and data centers. PCs in the fourth quarter, down 2%, but still a $9 billion quarter. Data center, only $5.6 billion, but that's up 20% year over year. So data centers growing fantastically for Intel. uh, For the year, up 11%, but that, that growth accelerating into the fourth quarter, very strong for Intel.
0: All right. Good to know. Certainly one name we're going to be talking about a little bit more. Uh, let's get to the volatility index. Report the VIX on this Thursday up almost nine-tenths of a percent. The VIX closing today at 11.57. It is now up one, two, three days in a row. This is Bloomberg.
2: All right. Dave, you're up. Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Dave.
7: Wilson, where are you? Wilson!
2: Just what do you
1: think
5: you're doing, Dave?
1: We're going for the price on Wilson.
7: Open up the door. It's Dave. Who?
6: Dave. Hey, Liz.
1: Dave Wilson joins us right now. You can tell, because there's Springsteen playing. There's always Springsteen playing somewhere. (laughs) Dave, uh, what do you got for your stock of the day?
7: Live Oak Bank shares, Corey. The company's mission is featured on the homepage of their banking unit's website. Empowering the American dream of small business owners. The bank makes loans nationwide and operates entirely online. Live Oak was founded in 2008 and went public in July 2015. The ticker is LOB. The uh, first six months of trading were tough on the stock, fell as much as 29%. And then a rebounded strongly enough to post gains of 30% in 2016 and 29% last year. Today, Live Oaks shares rose to a record and had their biggest daily gain since that very first day of trading back in 2015. They took off after fourth quarter results were released late yesterday. Live Oak's revenue beat analysts' average estimate in the Bloomberg survey by the most ever, 43%. Earnings exceeded projections for the sixth straight quarter. Company benefited from a digital banking joint venture with First Data called Aperture that began operating in the quarter. Shares of Live Oak rose as high as twenty-eight dollars and twenty cents today in the wake of those results. They closed at twenty-six ninety-five for a gain of ten and a half percent. Not too
0: shabby.
1: Not at all. Stock doubled since uh, July sixteen. I'll take that. Faceplant IPO. We love it.
0: All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Live Oak Bank shares his stock of the day. Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud,
1: or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.